All right, good morning again. Let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. And this morning we continue where we left off last week. Last week as we discussed the topic of revival together, it would be uh, amiss of us to not continue on to the next phase of what God does after a revival. And I'm talking about an awakening. An awakening. There are some who use the word revival and awakening awakening. Uh, you know, synonymously with one another, interchangeably. But as we look through history, we find that when God revives a a church, when God revives a person, it usually manifests itself by creating an awakening in the wake of that revival. Again, many have been asking about what's been taking place in the United States of America at Asbury and other universities around the country. And we see what appears to be a revival. Now I'm waiting for the awakening. And this is something that I have been looking forward to my whole entire life. But what is an awakening? It basically is the outpouring, the spilling over, if you will, of a revival into the society around them. And the fruit of that awakening is hundreds, thousands coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You can't miss it when it happens, okay? It turns the whole culture, the whole society, the whole nation upside down. It is an incredible experience. In the United States of America alone, we have had three great awakenings that have taken place. Now, an awakening can be localized to a a certain area of the nation, but it also can be national. And the national awakenings that we have seen have been so uh, dynamic that it truly changed the course of our nation's history that followed shortly after. And also, we see a direct correlation between the various awakenings that have taken place in the United States of America. We've seen those impacts upon our political climate. For example, the first great awakening took place between the years 1720 and 1750. I remember. No, I'm kidding. Through men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, it was a time of great awakening here in the American colonies. As one historian wrote, the revival preachers at that time emphasized the terror of the law to sinners, the unmerited grace of God, and the new birth in Jesus Christ. They frequently sought to inspire in their listeners a fear of consequences of their sinful lives and a respect for the omnipotence of God. And many believe that this awakening led to one of the greatest events in our nation's history. This revival that took place led to the establishment, okay, the establishment, okay, we're going to just move on. (laughs) Yeah, too much bowling, that's right. The revival stimulated the growth of several, maybe we should just pray, 
of several educational institutions, including Princeton, Brown, Rutgers, and Dartmouth College. The increase of dissent from the establishment churches during this period led to a broader tolerance of religious diversity. And the democratization of religious experience fed the fervor that historians believe led to the American Revolution, meaning God poured out his spirit prior to the Revolutionary War and the separation of our nation from England. That's how God prepared his people for what was coming next. And it didn't stop there. That was only the first of three great awakenings. The second great awakening happened shortly afterwards in 1795 to 1835 through men like Charles Finney, Barton Stone, Lyman Beecher. And the emphasis was that today was the day of salvation. Again, further colleges and seminaries were founded. One, wrote, one historian wrote that during this revival, meetings were held in small towns and large cities throughout the country. And the unique frontier institution known as the camp meeting began. Many churches experienced great increase in membership, particularly amongst the Methodists and Baptists. The Second Great Awakening made soul winning the primary function of the ministry and stimulated several moral and philanthropic uh, reforms, including the temperance and the emancipation of women. Generally considered less emotional, they write, concerning the First Great Awakening, the second wave of evangelical revivalism led to the founding of numerous college and seminaries across the country and organizations of mission societies within our land. Now, it's interesting because the newly found United States of America, during this period of time, while it was still in its infancy, was confronted by the Canadians, the Native Americans, and the British once again in what is known as the War of 1812. God encouraged his people to stand up during those turbulent times by bringing about the second great awakening. Now, 100 years later, here in the city of Chicago, in 1870, God raised up an individual named D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody is one of my heroes in the faith. I love reading his sermons. I love reading about his life. What started out as a missionary to the children of Chicago and creation of a ministry reaching out to them led to one of the greatest awakenings in Chicago's history. In fact, God used an event so extraordinary that it changed the course of D.L. Moody's entire life. D.L. Moody didn't initially see himself as an evangelist, but God was certainly ramping him up to be just that. And do you realize that one of the sermons that he was preaching in 1871 ended by the hearing of bells throughout the city of Chicago? Now, these bells were a common occurrence in Chicago, so nobody thought of it at the time. Hearing the bells, he drew his sermon to a close. 
and asked the people to consider if they knew Christ or not. To go home and to think about it, to ponder that, and then to come back next week. Unfortunately, those bells that began ringing lasted from Sunday into Tuesday. And over 18,000 buildings were burned to the ground here in Chicago. 300 lives were lost. One-third of the city of Chicago was homeless. They had a population of 300,000 at that time. Those bells were warning the people of what we now know as the Great Chicago Fire. D.L. Moody said in his journals that never again will he let a moment pass without asking for an immediate decision for Jesus Christ. Because many of those people who heard him that day did not return the following Sunday due to the fact that they had lost their lives. Fast forward again, bringing us to the turbulent times of bell-bottom and disco, the 1970s, ushered in by a group of individuals known as hippies. The third great revival in America's history lasted from 1970, and historians believe went all the way to 1989. I would argue that it's still going today. But our nation was turned upside down as we now know it to be the Jesus movement. Where our world, our nation, our society was absolutely turned on its head as young people, hippies, were getting saved by the thousands at that time in every area of our nation. What started in California spread across the entire nation. Now, interestingly enough, that had political ramifications also. But one wrote about the Jesus movement. He said that the Jesus movement was a restorationist in theology, meaning they wanted to get back to the looking of the early church, seeking to return the original life of the early Christians. As a result, Jesus people often, uh, citation needed, meaning viewed churches, especially those in the United States, as apostate and took a, a decidedly countercultural political stance in general. The Jesus people had a strong belief in miracles, signs, wonders, faith, healing, prayer, the Bible, and the powerful works of the Holy Spirit. To know that this was an incredibly impactful moment, Time Magazine, in April of 1966, wrote this on the cover of one of their magazines, Is God Dead? And just a short time later, on June 21st, my birthday, June 21st, my birthday, you can put it in your calendar now, I accept gifts the week before and the week after, make it easy for you, but in June of 1971, the Jesus movement was well on its way and they had the cover of Time Magazine to describe it. This is an awakening when a whole nation is turned upside down. Now, I said at the beginning that the Third uh, Awakening also had political ramifications. And those ramifications came in the election of none other than Ronald Reagan himself. Because just shortly before that, 
with the help of individuals like Jimmy Carter and the incredible conservatism that was trans, uh, transforming the entire universities of our nation, Ronald Reagan was thrown into office and brought us back to a healthy position once again. So why do I say this? Why do I say this about the Revolutionary War and the First Great Awakening's impact upon it? How about the Second, the second Awakening and on the War of 1812? Or the Third Great Awakening before the return to conservatism here in the United States of America? We are not going to change this country politically only, okay? We can vote all that we want. It's not going to change unless God changes the hearts of the people. And that's why I pray for a great awakening again in our day. Not solely for the restoration of our nation. And trust me, our nation needs to be restored, doesn't it? I think the only word to aptly describe what we see happening here in the United States of America on a large scale is the word insanity. We need to change course. If we are here now and we continue to go on in this direction... Where will we be in 10 years? What will our nation look like in 10 years? So let's begin to pray that the revivals that we may see spreading across our nation would then translate into another great awakening. What's interesting to me is what one historian wrote about the awakenings. He said, if the great number of converted people flooding into the churches had been the only result of the awakenings, that would be satisfactory, he says. But these awakenings is notable for more than just that, for it had a greater impact on secular society than any other American history throughout its vast social concerns. For this reason, it is worthwhile for Christians today to know about its influence for they can be very pleased with what it accomplished. Meaning, we need another one. If we're going to truly change things, we need another great awakening. And today I'm going to show you awakenings in the Bible. Various places where God used individuals to change the whole culture and society of a certain people group. The impact was tremendous. See, often we're looking for this huge event to take place where all of the soldiers of army of God are marching in hand, hand in hand, looking to win the people back to Christ. Now, what would you say if I told you that God only needs one available person to do so? One person who's willing to stand up. One person who is willing to go. One person who is willing to speak on God's behalf. Now, the first individual that I'm going to show you this morning, well, willingness is not a word that I would use to describe him. This morning, we are going to begin in our look at various awakenings in the Bible with the prophet Jonah himself. And the thing about Jonah is that you need to know from the very beginning, he's known as the reluctant prophet. He didn't want to go. In fact, we are going to discover in the life of Jonah, he did just the opposite. In chapter 1 of the book of Jonah, if you want to flip there, I want to read some verses with you as we go through the entire book just quickly, showing you highlights of the book. 
because often I think that Jonah resembles a lot of Christians today. So God begins the whole book by calling Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, okay? And frankly, Jonah did not want to go. And Jonah even tells us why he didn't want to go. He actually tells us that in chapter 4. He didn't think the Ninevites were worthy of repentance. He didn't think that they were worthy of a second chance. And so when he got the call of God upon his heart to go to Nineveh to preach that within days judgment would fall, you know what Jonah did? He bought a ticket, hopped on a boat, and went the complete opposite way. I'm not going. Now, I don't know about you, but it's never a good idea to say no to God. God has a tendency to do things to get our attention at those moments. And this was pretty drastic. As we look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, notice with me, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He wanted to get away from him. Lord, I'm not going. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Do you get the hint there? He's fleeing the presence of God. I'm not going. And he thinks he's going to hide from God in the belly of a ship. You know, God, where did Jonah go? I, I hate when they do this to me, you know. Jonah. Okay. Jonah. Really? Well, as the ship began to proceed, the Bible tells us that God brought about a great storm. And the seamen on the ship became terrified of what was occurring. They began to throw their freight overboard so the ship would not sink. Finally, they discovered and they realized that the reason that they were in this predicament was because someone here was being disobedient to their God. But they didn't know which one. So notice with me in verse 10 of chapter 1, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Jonah... Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord. Finally, as they went about the ship, they found Jonah sleeping in the bottom of it. Jonah then told them who he was and that he was running from the presence of God. And now they realized that it was him because they had cast lots and those lots fell on Jonah. And notice with me in verse 11, then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? Do you ever notice that when Christians are disobedient, it's everyone around us suffers, it's not only us? Sin has a tendency to affect those in whom we love. Sin never is self-contained. If you're married, your sin will affect your spouse. If you have children, your sin will affect your children in a direct way or an indirect way. God, trying to get Jonah's attention, put these other men in jeopardy also. And now they're asking how they may rectify the situation. For the sea was growing more tempestuous, the Bible says. And he said to them, Just pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. 
for I know this great tempest is because of me. See, again, in Jonah's heart, he still didn't want to go. So just throw me overboard. I'll die, and then the sea will be calm, and I don't have to go to Nineveh. All the boxes checked. We're good. Let's move forward. But God had a different plan in mind. The Bible tells us in Jonah chapter 2 that after they threw him into the sea, God led a great fish to swallow him. And for three days, Jonah was in the belly of this great fish. Now, a lot of people have problems with that. Oh, come on now. That could never occur. That must be uh, some type of symbolism or metaphor or illustration, etc. But do you know Jesus talks about this event? And he says that it literally happened, and it would be the only sign that the generation who saw Jesus would be given. That like Jonah, the Son of Man would be in the belly of the earth for three days. But while he is in the belly of the fish. Now, to what lengths does God have to bring us to repentance? Isn't it interesting that Jonah thought that he was running away from God? He was hiding from God, either in the belly of the ship or being thrown into the sea. And yet God saw him that whole entire time, as God sees you. You may be resistant to what God would have you to do. You may not want to do it. You may not want to go to your friends and family or the people within our society and world and share the gospel with them. Maybe like Jonah, you've become angry in your heart, you become bitter in your heart, and you don't feel that this generation is worthy of repentance. Oh, how quickly we forget who we were before we became Christians, right? I could easily see people saying this of me in the 1980s. Oh my gosh, that guy? You mean God can't find anybody better? Really? I think we need to check our hearts at the door. I think we need to examine our minds and our hearts before God concerning our attitudes towards this world. Towards people that don't agree with us. That people who don't seem to deserve salvation. Aren't you glad that we're not God and that God is long-suffering and He is kind and it's His kindness that leads people to repentance? That's the heart that we need to reflect to the world around us. This world is hurting. Young people are hurting and there's great confusion. Deception and lying abounds in our nation. They're looking for the truth. They're looking for the true relationship that only can be satisfied through Christ with our Heavenly Father. And yet many of us, like Jonah, are running from God. God, don't send me. Don't use me, because they don't deserve it. But finally, being brought to the belly of this great fish, and I can't even imagine what that was like, you know? Him bouncing up and down in the stomach of this great fish, covered in seaweed, probably smelled uh, aromically attractive. But at that moment of lowness, Jonah repented. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 4, Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Meaning, I'm going to turn back to you. In Jonah 2.7, When my soul fainted within me, Jonah says, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you. 
into your holy temple. And continuing on in verses 8 and 9, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah repents and turns back to God. So sometimes God has to work in our life and use very difficult circumstances to get our attention. It's because God loves you too much to leave you the way he found you. And when we run away from God and we're disobedient to God, he knows ultimately that it's going to hurt us to do so. So if he gives us an opportunity to repent and we choose not to, God then turns up the heat, leads us into very difficult circumstances to get our attention that we would turn back to him just as Jonah did. And now Jonah was in a place to be obedient to God. But we're going to see that just because he was obedient didn't mean he liked it. We're going to see that in just a moment. But Nineveh was one of the largest cities at that time. The Bible says that it was a three-day journey by walking across the breadth of the city. And there were 125,000 individuals, young individuals, who were still not yet discerning, the Bible tells us. So we don't know how many adults actually lived there. And they were a cruel people. They were a conquering people. And when they conquered various nations, they were very cruel to their captives. And so Jonah didn't believe that they were worthy of God's forgiveness. But yet he still went even in his reluctancy. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, read with me if you will. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, or judged, or destroyed. That's it. He didn't start by saying, you know, hey, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He proclaimed judgment. That God was going to deal with the city of Nineveh and they had 40 days to respond. God always gives people an opportunity to repent by simply laying conviction on their heart. If we choose to repent, God then restores. If we choose to resist, then God turns up the heat. And we fall into various trials to get our attention. As Peter wrote in the New Testament, those trials are given as need be, as Peter says, to get our attention. But this is all Jonah said to the people of Nineveh. This is it. We don't have any further explanation or content to to talk about. Simply that the city was going to be overthrown. And Jonah was surprised because God was already working in the hearts of the people before he ever got there. And they heeded the message and they repented. Notice with me in verse 5 of chapter 3. 
So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. These are all signs of repentance. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let men and beasts be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell? They don't even know here. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger that we may not perish? Then God saw their works. And that he turned from the, that they had turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. That's incredible to me. That's all Jonah said, and the people responded, greatly responded. The whole city, by decree of the king, was brought to repentance. God changed a whole group of people, a whole entire city, with one simple saying. The saying, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now you would think that Jonah would be happy and rejoice over what had just happened. And yet we see Jonah leaving, and theologically the term is called pouting. He pouted. He was upset. He was angry. And as we make our way into chapter 4, look with me in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? I knew this was going to happen. I knew they were going to come to repentance. Wow, not the reaction you would expect. Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. You're slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better to me to die than to live. He has a fruitful ministry, and he's like, Lord, end it all. I don't want to see them repent. I don't want to see you relent. They deserve everything that you were going to lay upon them in your judgment of them. But then God does what only God can do. He gently gets Jonah's attention. Chapter 4 tells us that he went and he began to sit probably on a ridge or a, 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 above the city of Nineveh and it was very hot and Jonah was sitting out there just simply waiting to die and God sent a plant to cover him. And Jonah was very thankful for the plant because it cooled him in the shade of the plant. But then the next day after that, God sent a worm, and that worm ate the plant. And Jonah was angry again. Now I've lost the plant too. But in it all, God was trying to teach Jonah a lesson. He was trying to show Jonah his own heart through this. And asks Jonah an incredible question that we find in Jonah 4, 10 through 11. 
He says, but the Lord said to him, you have, you've had pity on a plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow. I mean, you care more about the plant than you do the people, which came up in the night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern, meaning they're young, between right, their right hand and between their left, and much livestock. He's saying, Jonah, you're more concerned about this plant than you are people. What are we more concerned about than we are the people around us who are dying apart from Christ? Maybe you feel like Jonah. And it's easy to become that way with all of the news and the information that we're being given on a daily basis. And we're sickened to our stomach over what we are hearing and seeing. But let us understand that what we are seeing is truly the manifestation of the ruler of this world through those who are lost. And we were in the same predicament that they once were. And if we want to be prepared and used by God for what he wants to do next, then we have to see people as he sees people. During the Super Bowl, one of the commercials that uh, was aired, Jesus Gets Us, it, it was the fact that God loves the people that we often hate. And I think we need to be reminded of that. Notice too with me that it was only Jonah who went. He didn't have an entourage. It wasn't a big group of people that stormed the city of Nineveh to preach throughout its, without its, throughout its walls. It was Jonah himself. God can raise up an individual to impact an entire city. God only needs one of us to impact the city of Chicago. I think of what Ezekiel wrote when he said in Ezekiel 33, 11, he says, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But, the wick but if the wicked, that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, he says. For why should you die, O house of Israel? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet, like Jonah, we seem to be so reluctant today to share our Christian faith with anyone who isn't like us or a Christian already. Notice what Greg Laurie tweeted back in July. He said this. He says, research shows that 95% of Christians have never led another person to Christ. Only 2% of churchgoers have invited an unchurched person to church in the past year. And 59% of Christians say they seldom or never share their faith with others. Let's change that. And I say amen. If we want to see an awakening, if we ask God for revival, let's ask God that He would revive our hearts to see people as He sees them. As we make our way to the New Testament to look at our next example of an awakening, this one is localized. And God, again, uses an individual that you may have never suspected to be used in the way that she was used. I say it that way because this woman was a Samaritan. And the Samaritans were hated by the Jews because they were half Jewish and half Gentile. 
And there was a, a rift between the Samaritan and the Jewish people. But Jesus made his way into Samaria, and while there, he met a woman next to the well who was drawing water at an odd time of the day because she was most likely hated by the rest of the society for having multiple husbands, living in an immoral way. And as Jesus then is left at the well with her, the disciples go into the city to find provisions for the day, and Jesus then begins to discuss with her, showing and demonstrating who he is to her. And when the disciples return, and this is where we'll pick up the story, in John chapter 4, verse 27, John tells us that at this point his disciples came back and they marveled that he had talked with a woman, yet no one said, who do you seek? Why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, the disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, which, is, which you do not know. And therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say that there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? He says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Stop there. As Jesus was ministering to this woman, she began to realize in her heart who he was. And as the disciples returned, she then went into the city, as we have just read, and told everybody, could this be Messiah? Could this be the one that we are waiting for? Now, do you notice here that in our text, the disciples really didn't know what was going on, did they? God was completely working in a unique way, an extraordinary way, but they missed it, right? And then after bringing them along slowly, he finally says, you know, you say to yourself that harvest is still yet coming. It's still months away. But he says, I say now that the fields are white for harvest. And there are many commentators and scholars who believe that at that moment when Jesus said that, the men were coming out of the city because the wells were always built outside of the city. The men were coming out in white garments and he says, there is the opportunity. There is the harvest. Now is the time. Folks, I don't know if I have to stress this. If we don't act now, I don't know a perf more perfect time to act, do you? God has given us such a dark background to demonstrate and to manifest the light of Christ that we need to take advantage of the opportunity that is right here in front of us. As Esther was planted there in the, in the king's palace for a time such as this, so are we today in a time such as this. Now notice, a lot of people say, well, I don't evangelize because I don't know what to say. That didn't stop this woman, did it? It didn't stop this woman at all. She simply just invited the people to come in here for themselves. And notice what happens. In verse 36... He says to his disciples, he who reaps uh, receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, 
that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice. Again, he is saying that the work is already happening. He just simply wants us to join into it. For in this is the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. He says, I sent you to reap that which for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Here's what I'm saying, and don't miss this. We have to know and understand that God is already at work in the society around us. He's already working. And he's saying, now, just go in and enter into the labors and notice and see that some have gone before you already. Paul said it this way, some plant seeds, some water seeds, other harvest. It's a collective effort. But knowing that God is before us is so important. Notice with me in verse 39, and many of the Samaritans, and that word many in the Greek could also also be translated, most of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. And then when they heard, we'll find out later that they also believed because of him. He told me all that I ever did. That was enough. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. God is working ahead of us, God is working through us, and God will continue the work after us because he's the author and the finisher of their faith. That which he has started, he is faithful to complete in their lives. You are not in this alone. But we need to raise our eyes up. We need to get our eyes off of our own little microcosm of our world and look around us for the opportunities that God is presenting before us. Because later on, as we come to Acts chapter 2, our next stop, the next great awakening there in Jerusalem takes place through a series of events. As the disciples were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came filled them. They began to praise God in the languages of the people that were there in Jerusalem during the time of Pentecost. And as they were praising God in various languages that the individuals who were there knew, the disciples could never have known on their own because they were uneducated men, realized that something unique was happening. And then, of course, Peter answers that question. This is what's happening, what the prophet Joel had talked about. But then notice with me, he immediately then begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He begins to talk about Jesus and who Jesus is. And then says something to them that is absolutely amazing. Notice with me in Acts chapter 2 verse 36. He says, therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they had heard that, they were cut to the heart. It means deeply convicted. And Peter and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. It starts with the Jews and will go all into the Gentile world. As many as the Lord our God will call. 
And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And notice this, Peter's first sermon, just a few minutes long, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Not bad, huh? And we know that as we continue reading the book of Acts, as the church gathered together and continued in the apostles' doctrine, in the breaking of bread and fellowship and in prayer, signs and wonders were done amongst them. A great fear came upon all of the people, and it says that they had favor with all of the people there in Jerusalem. This was the awakening that began the church and impacted from there the entire world. But lastly, I want to conclude with you with Paul the Apostle in the city of Ephesus. If you haven't read Acts chapter 19 in a while, may I ask you to do so. I'd also ask you to read Acts 17 as he takes the gospel into Athens. But in Acts chapter 19, he takes the gospel into Ephesus. And through, again, a series of supernatural events, the preaching of God's word, the uh, exorcists of demons, the exercising of demons, Paul the Apostle gets the attention of the people around him. And the entire city of Ephesus was turned upside down. Well, how do you know that? Notice what happens. In verse 11, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the disease left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Talk about a unique period of time. Then some of the uh, itinerary Jewish exorcists took upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by, the, uh, by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And apparently they weren't Christians themselves. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And notice this, that the evil spirit answered and said, Well, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Then the men in whom the evil spirits leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's what you call a service that has backfired. This became known both to the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord was magnified, and those who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver." So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Let's stop there. This is what you call gospel impact upon a society. After seeing and hearing of the power of Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul, and that these demons recognized and knew who Paul was and who Jesus was, the magic, the secular magic in which they were practicing was no longer needed. It was no longer val you know, valued to them. And they probably were terrified of its consequences. So after coming to Christ, they got rid of it all. They got rid of all of those books for 50,000 pieces of silver. Let's put that in English. 
In the dollar, that's $250,000 worth of books. Now, I don't know about you, but that would indicate to me radical change, wouldn't it? Them being willing to do such a thing. But it doesn't stop there. The awakening in Ephesus impacted the entire economy of the city of Ephesus. Notice with me in verse 23, if you will. And about that time, there rose a great uh, commotion about the way, that is, the Christian faith. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen, meaning he made a boatload of money off of making these little idols. And he called them together with the workers of similar occupations and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity in this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, again, there's that word again, many people saying that there are not gods which are made with hands. So not only, notice this, this kills me, is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but the temple of the great goddess Diana might, may be despised and her magnificent destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worships. Here's what I say. Oh, too bad. The gospel was so impactful that they turned from their idols. And now the silversmiths, and those who made money over the sale of these idols, over the merchandise, the swag of Diana, if you will. They were losing money because nobody needed them anymore. That's what you call impact, right? That's what you call impact. You know, years ago, as we would drive down 62 into Algonquin, there was this tarot card reader. And my wife and daughter, my wife, it just said, oh, people don't need this stuff. The, you know, Christ can fill their hearts. So every time her and my daughter drove over to Dina's grandmother's house, who lived just nearby, they would pray that the Lord would remove that tarot card place. And one day, as they were driving down, they finally saw that that tarot card place had not only been moved, but it was torn to the ground. With Jesus Christ, the occult world is not needed. And they realized this. Idols were turned away from. The economy was completely impacted by the awakening there in Ephesus. This is true change. This isn't emotionalism. This isn't a, a spiritual high. This is something real, tangible, impactful, to the society. After revival sweeps the churches, then it moves to an awakening within the surrounding society, and that's what we're praying for now. Seeing people, number one, coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Jonah, the woman by the well, Paul the apostle, Peter, okay, he uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. If he uses them, he can use us today. 
God is already at work, please know this, in the hearts of the people, preparing them for the gospel. Now I know that for many of us, that's hard to see, isn't it? But when God gets ready to move, we're going to find that he's been working the whole entire time. And we just enter into that work. We're not in this alone. Notice what Jesus said in John 16, verses 7 through 11. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. The first word used to describe the Holy Spirit is the word helper. What does that mean to you? Paraclites in the Greek, one who comes alongside to help you. But if I depart, I will send him to you, Jesus says. And when he has come, he will notice, convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Spirit is here. He is working. And now we just need to get on board with what He is doing. Because revival or awakening is never manufactured by the hands of man. It is always a work of God in society. So if individuals ask, hey, is what happening at Asbury, is that a revival or what's happening at Samford or what's happening here or there, a revival? Ask them the question, let's wait and see. Because the next step will be an awakening. These young people will go out into the world and they'll begin to share the gospel with others to find that God has already been working. Revival is never meant to be kept within the walls of the church. It's meant to spill out into the world. And that's what God desires to do. And the evidence of that awakening from these individuals coming to Christ will be that the culture is changed. And as one wrote, he said, before kingdoms can ever change, men must change first. If we want to see our nation healed, let us ask that God would revive His church pour out His Spirit and allow for a great fourth awakening here in the United States of America. And let's ask that we here at Calvary Chapel can be part of what God wants to do next. Amen?